0: in a an original or like near the start of DBS. Uh or? yeah like
1: it was pretty near the start like uh i always forget when exactly the start was but late 90s and uh i came on in 2000 or actually i think 1999 was yeah <laughs> it was like the charter
0: <laughs> yeah because <laughs> there was
1: yeah i came on as a guest first uh-huh. and then i came back again and then i became a co-host um,
0: what was the first show? I mean, was the show that you were on the show that you're still doing now? Yeah,
1: it's still that one. It's been the one for 20 years.
0: And what is the name of that show?
1: It's uh, Your Community Spirit.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> so who, started that, who started that show, and then like, how did it become your show?
1: Yeah, well, I think, actually, I'm not sure who started it, because Orr took it over from someone who, I, I think someone started a show before him, and he took their slot. Uh-huh. But then Orr was the one who started Your Community Spirit as such. And uh, then I came on as a guest and kept coming back.
0: (laughs) 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 And 20 years later, here we are. Uh, Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's how a lot of my community involvement has gone, I feel. I show up for something. And then they need extra help, and suddenly <laughs> I'm doing a lot more than I thought.
0: Well, and that's the uh, that's part of the theme of being the uh, local superhero, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is how we intro into episode 16 of the WTF Carbondale podcast, the podcast where we we where, where we where we try and talk uh, before we do anything, where we interview interesting people about their interesting lives, and tie it all together on this little old place we call home, Carbondale, Illinois, and very few people. Tie this town together quite like Tree Song, and that's okay. what we're talking about. I love. Okay, so I'm just gonna let you keep rolling from there on. You know, using using the radio program to kind of like intertwine community.
1: Okay, yeah, thank you. Uh, and the the radio show program has been one of my most consistent forms of involvement over the years. Like, I've been involved in a lot of different things, nonprofits, you know, unstructured groups, uh, businesses, just about everything I've been able to find. But I think part of why the Year Community Spirit keeps drawing me back is because it's it's a way of getting a lot of information about the community out there. Like, you know, we do our news stories that are about national and international news. Mm-hmm. But then there's always this segment about the happenings where we talk about things that local community groups are doing. So it's like whatever else I'm involved in, having a radio show where you talk about what's going on in the community helps it.
0: Yeah. That's cool, man. I, I dig that. And I, and I always try and tell people, like, media is the intersection like you can do every other thing but like you know and and it was not as prevalent 20 years ago when you first touched your toes into the water of this stuff yeah so and i mean being on the forefront of like digital activity in you know the creator space i mean the the comic books and, and the writing and the storytelling that you do the media that you create like how has that evolved? because of digital tools and the way that things have changed since you first hopped on the radio 20 years (laughs) ago.
1: Well, one of the, let's see, I think one big evolution has been social media, Mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of the communication I do now about the issues I care about is on social media, which, you know, is a mixed bag. (laughs) There are good things about it and bad things about it, but I do appreciate the fact that it gets a lot of people to reach each other and communicate. Because I'm old enough that I remember the time when, you know, back in the nineteen eighties, <laughs> long <laughs> ago, you know, if you wanted to talk to someone, you had to know their phone number and call them at just the right time. And <laughs> it was at a different time. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to communicate with people like and it can be asynchronous too. You can send a text to someone and they may not reply for half a day. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to have that constant communication when you want it
0: it. when when you want it is the key yeah it's kind of like a a water spigot you know (laughs) how much water do i need right now (laughs) turn it on turn it off so I, i said i said comic book but i'm way i'm way off on that side you're not you're not a you're not a comic you don't You're not a drawer you are a writer you are a novelist correct yes that's right okay so tell me tell me more about like what drew you into the writing aspect as somebody who has a who had a you know philosophy education background how did how did that transition into being like a writer
1: oh yes that's i'm happy to talk about that it's actually something an interest that precedes all of my other community interests really i remember growing up and being a little kid and reading like, I was such a big fan of reading, and I read a lot of science fiction, but other things too. And that's, you know, was, has been a lifelong interest of mine. And I remember probably about third or fourth grade writing some fan fiction for the, uh, it was for the Danny Dunn series. It's mm-hmm. this series of books about a young a boy and his friends who know a scientist or two and go on a lot of science-related adventures. <laughs> so I wrote some fan fiction for that you know, when I was in grade school.
2: Yeah.
1: And ever since then, I've been doing writing. And it really, w- the big realization for me was the fact that it could intersect with my other interests.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For a while, it was sort of a separate category. I have my writing that I do sometimes. I have my community involvement that I do. And I came to this realization that what if I write about <laughs> the issues that I talk about? Yeah. You know, so uh, then I became a climate fiction author, and it's stuck ever since then.
0: <laughs> I, I wish climate fiction meant what it means to you to a lot of other people yeah. in this world <laughs> there's a lot yeah. there's a lot
1: of people who tell climate fictions and pretend it's news
0: you, know. <laughs> <laughs> I you put hit it the out nail there. on the head my friend yeah
1: you know, I put it out there this is fiction. <laughs>
0: uh, like it's something that or or it's almost introspective fiction. It's almost <laughs> futuristic yeah. fiction. It's it's what it's what could happen if we continue to be fictitious in our discussions yes. in the here and now.
1: Yes, and that's <laughs> I sort of go back and forth between some of it that I write is sort of present day or near future and isn't really all that apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. And some of it is more distant in the future and everything's gone wrong.
0: Wait, you write, <laughs> you write stuff that's modern day and it's not apocalyptic? That's awfully brazen of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Well, it's, sort of, it's been sort of discouraging the past year or so. You know, I've, I've written fiction like uh, Goodbye, Miami, my novel. It's uh-huh. set in 2030 and there is a big hurricane that hits Miami and the, the city basically goes underwater. Uh-huh. And there are elements of that that are set in 2030 that I've seen starting to pop up in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. The, the conflicts in the street between, you know, the conservative militias and Antifa, mm-hmm. like, and, you know, and Black Lives Matter and everyone who's in the streets having conflicts. I represented some of that in my novel thinking yeah. maybe in a decade it'll get that intense in the streets.
0: Psych. Here we go. <laughs> here we are. Saddle up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's fun. It's fun. I wish uh, – God – you know, and and I and I don't know. This is this is this is just my my brain rolling off into things now that we're discussing. We, I think parts of, um, you know, uh, leftist ideology needs better branding. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I <think laughs> and I and I would true. like to see what uh, what the uh, what the mirror is. Uh, I, I've not I've not read your novels, but now but now I'm interested to know like more about the character sets that reflect what's currently going on here like can you talk a little bit about the character sets in the books that you know kind of mirror what uh what we see happening now did you did you go more in depth in the descriptions of those character sets in the book or are they just kind of like you know ah we have two sides they clash in the streets but here's the climate aspect and we're really focusing in on this
1: um i went into i'd say a little bit of both you know i went into some explanation of the characters that were clashing The, the main character was someone who lived of goodbye Miami with someone mm. who lived in Miami and fled to Southern Illinois because I wanted to include a Southern Illinois angle, of course.
0: <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm sorry to derail that part of it. So yeah. I, I, that is, we need to do a whole separate like <laughs> promo video. I, I, we need to be pitching this place to climate refugees, to like citizen climate refugees yeah. in this country. I, it, you know, Yes, all over the world as well, but like, if you want to sell it to everybody, it's like citizen refugees, people in California, people on the East Coast, people in the Gulf Coast, in Florida, in Texas, wherever, that are being forced out of their homes that will not return again because of the catastrophes of climate change. Mm-hmm. And shame on me for having not read your books <laughs> Tree yeah. Song, because it's brilliant, I, and, I, and I don't mean to – yeah, thank you for having the idea first.
1: Oh, yeah, well, yeah, and thank you for saying that. And it's, I think, at the time, it was sort of implicit, but I think part of why I did write it that way was that I do have this sense that Southern Illinois might be a place where such people come. Mm-hmm. Because especially, you know, if the if there's still low lower property values than in a big urban area mm-hmm, they may be mm-hmm. trying to move to, and there's the beautiful Shawnee Forest around here, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of good stuff going on in the community. I've heard people describe it as both a good possibility and a bad possibility. Yeah. You know, because a lot of tales of climate refugees moving around in the United States is a tale of there's a big disaster somewhere, and then somewhere else people will be living in tents because there's not enough room for them yeah. that, it, you know it could be apocalyptic if we don't plan for it, mm-hmm. but we've got at least some time still to plan for that, so yep, you know let's consider how we can have our region prepare for such things
0: yeah yeah I mean, that's that's it that's as, that's as clear
1: a line as any. Yeah. <laughs> And fiction, I think part of why fiction has really struck a chord for me is because I also write nonfiction sometimes, but mm-hmm. my emphasis is on fiction, and it's because storytelling is such a powerful part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I. it took me a while to catch on to that. As someone who's a, a climate justice advocate, I would read the latest scientific reports on it, and I'd say, oh, this is this is terrible. Think of all the stuff that's going to happen. Uh-huh. And I, the crickets would be chirping <laughs> as the <laughs> reports released, and I'm like... Why aren't people excited about this? Why aren't they scared about this? Uh-huh. But I realized it's because of storytelling. You know, to me, reading that report tells a story. But to most people, the, their eyes may glaze over as they see charts and graphs. And, but if you read a story about it, like hopefully based in the science somewhat, and maybe even not sometimes, just a mm-hmm. story that gets you thinking, it really makes it more personal, makes it more direct. It makes you think about it. And that applies to both fiction and nonfiction. But really, my emphasis has been fiction.
0: I think it's easier for folks to find themselves in fiction than it is for them to find themselves in nonfiction because nonfiction is already concrete part of this world and fiction is something that at any point in time you can manipulate it in your own mind to be what you want it to be outside of the words on the page.
1: Yes. And part of it too is that there's a, for for better or worse, people often delve into fiction as a form of escapism. Mm -hmm. You know, they've had a rough day at, at their work, at their school, whatever they're doing, and they want something fun to do. And even if it's a terrifying story, that can still be fun. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of horror stories as well as science fiction. So there is an excitement to the bad stories too. And so whether it's a good or bad story, if you delve into climate in the realm of fiction, people get engaged, people, g- they think about all the different connections, like the justice issues can start to play out. Mm-hmm. Because there's been a big problem with climate communication for years where it's starting to get better, but, there was a certain segment of the climate movement that used like the conservationist communication strategies Mm -hmm. where they'd say, here's a polar bear. We love polar bears. So let's stop the ice from melting. And if you love polar bears, that's great. But if you don't, if you're someone who's working with other justice issues, you may not care about the polar bears right now. (laughs) You're like, let me be sure I get fed and I have a job and I have my life. You know, I'm not killed by anyone. Mm
2: -hmm. And then I'll
1: care about the polar bears. So instead, a lot of new climate justice narratives focus on climate justice, what the stories are for people, and that's a lot more motivating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is.
1: I find that even for myself. you know, I, was, I would report on the, uh, well, report isn't really the right word. We really just syndicate other people's content. <laughs> <laughs> We're very fortunate that there are a lot of great climate yeah. reporters out there. Uh, but you know, even I would read stories, and they would talk about polar bears, and my eyes would start to glaze over. Like, mm-hmm. You know, I care about climate, but do I really want to read another one? <laughs> <laughs> but then I read a story about a, you know, a, one of the most recent ones was there's in Chicago, I forget the name of it, but there's a, a black owned veteran owned business that is installing solar and retrofitting the heating systems of mm-hmm. a housing development. Mm-hmm. And it checks off all of these boxes of like helping people in marginalized communities, helping install solar so that we transition to clean energy. You know, it, Projects like that, they tell an amazing story where someone had a vision, they got together the stuff that they needed to do to achieve that vision, mm-hmm. and now hundreds of people have solar power because of that.
0: Yeah. Well, and there is, you know, it, the... Yeah, I, I, Everybody's got kind of their, their position along the, uh, you know, political spectrum on how to participate in economy, right? Everything from, uh, you know... Far left and being in the communism realm, you know. Center left and being in the democratic socialism realm, um, you know. Right in base capitalism, far right in uh, you know <laughs> vacuum <laughs> capitalism, <laughs> yeah. or I don't you know the, the the worst parts of um, oh what's the word I'm looking for? just essentially where you're where you're siphoning off all the resources is you know corporate entities or whatever else but not actually caring about redeveloping in the communities that you're actively taking resources <laughs> out of yeah like in,
1: extractive and ultra austerity <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah um in in the midst of that i find myself as as really what i call like a transactionalist right like Whatever it may be, the reality is the value is in the transaction, right? The interaction between individuals, whatever that transaction may be. It can be money for goods. It can be goods for goods. It can be ideas for goods. It can be ideas for ideas. It is simply the interaction between humans that creates the transaction that is the value that we derive from our lives. And what we've done is we've excluded so many people from even being able to participate in a transaction that activities like what you're describing are key like doing something with groups of people who have traditionally been excluded or marginalized to a point of saying these are the transactions that you're allowed to have until somebody comes along and says no you don't just have you don't just have to have this base consumerist transaction what you can have is this next level of you know essentially life care in you know participating in a transaction that sees a better floor for you your family and the community around you brought up so that you can be more stable and do more good in the world around you yeah sorry i'm, I'm <laughs> going off on tangents here i don't mean to but oh yeah like no, that's that's okay. how that's how i picture the, what you just described like is a, a just a different form and fit for whatever the world we're creating is right now
1: <laughs> yeah and it's i like the fact that there are a lot of sort of uh, alternative models emerging for how to do these sorts of things like they're you know, I have a lot of critiques of the system as <laughs> the, the, the way it is. You know, I would describe myself as a revolutionary. Uh-huh. I think that the entire system as it is now just has fundamental problems that probably can't be solved with tweaking a little bit here and there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I also i am not dogmatic in the sense that, you know, some people I know who take that mindset, they're like, oh, just sweep it all away. There's nothing we can do until, you know, we change the whole form of governance. And I'm like that's going to take some time, you know, it's going to yeah. take some time between now and then. And what are the people who are suffering under oppression and marginalization right now, what are they going to do?
2: Yeah.
1: So any s- projects we can create that help marginalized groups, that help transform us in the direction of a more uh, social economy where we're cooperating with each other. And that can be anything from like worker collectives to uh, just, you know, uh, I'm part of a group like Buy Nothing Carbondale. Uh-huh which uh, formed pretty recently where you just, it's a gift economy. Mm-hmm. There's not even any trading or selling. You just offer gifts to each other and give and receive. So any models like that, which step a little bit outside of what we're currently doing are a, a major help to get more people sharing with each other really.
0: I think the trick is to get more attention on this activity. Claire was, Claire was uh, able to get in on a, a, a news piece for WSIL a couple weeks ago on that, and that was absolutely awesome. But then you see how much more stuff that media entities pile on that is not the, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't want to say, just use the word positive, right? But does not embrace, uh, you know, a modern, a modern living, a modern lifestyle of, of uh, you know, interacting with one another. It just goes back to, oh, well, here's this one cool thing that happened that we fit into a week's <laughs> worth of news and everything else just sucks. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that's a major problem with uh, the approach to news is, you know, it is it is good, important to hear about all of the bad things that happened. You know, you don't want to have buildings burned down in your town and you don't hear about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> that sort of thing. But it's also important to have m- news and media and communication about the good things as well.
2: Yeah,
1: I think of how, in terms of social movements, how they, they frame things both in sort of the the constructive program and the resistance program, mm-hmm. like... And really the biggest emphasis in many ways is on the constructive program. You need the resistance in order to stop the harms that are currently happening. Mm -hmm. But if that's the only thing you're doing, you're not going to build a better society. You also need a constructive program where you, whether it's building these smaller local groups or trying to build something larger, you're trying to create something in the shell of the current society that is pointing the way towards a a community and a society where we're nicer to each other and respect each other's rights, take care of each other, that sort of thing
0: and the 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 issue in the in the media sphere is that the constructive aspect does not have the same whiz bang that the bottle <laughs> rocket of yeah <laughs> of the other does right the, yeah. the the um it is because there is so much constructive going on right how and why does it get ignored like it does well
1: i think some of it comes down to just uh the, the lack of faith in the power of constructive storytelling mm-hmm You know, it's people, I feel like people have realized one part of storytelling is conflict. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so a lot of the news reporting focuses on the conflict and doesn't focus on things like resolution. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Resolution is also a part of storytelling. So if you have a conflict where there are people who are, like to use the climate example, there are people who are using dirty energy, there are people who are, you know, economically disenfranchised, and then you come up with a solution to that that's a full narrative there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you just show the problem and nothing happens, that's not really a full narrative. It might get you some headlines because you said something exciting about what happened, but (laughs) (laughs) it's it's more rich storytelling. And I think viewers realize that. I think that's a part of why they turn to fiction so much is Mm -hmm. they don't get that resolution in the nonfiction. (laughs) They just see the doom and gloom and either they go with it and say, "Oh, we're all doomed," and they just obsessively <laughs> watch it for twenty-four hours, uh-huh. or they say, oh, "I'm not going to pay attention to that. That's just doom and gloom." Mm-hmm. But if you balance it with some solutions, then you've got something.
0: Man, you have really taken my incoherence and turned it into absolutely beautiful <laughs> 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 statements about, um, you know, really, really an, an approach to media. well, oh, thank it, you. It's <laughs> it's really exciting, man. I so so you. You got to Carbondale when?
1: I got to Carbondale in 1996.
0: 96. Okay. Yeah. What brought you here?
1: I came here because I was an undergrad, a freshman at SIU. Uh, my brother and I were the the first two to get in our family to get uh, college degrees, bachelor's uh-huh. degrees, and then my brother went on to get a doctorate, uh, and I stayed at the bachelor's degree level. <laughs> but it's because I stayed here, I loved it here, I got involved in all sorts of. Community activities and and forms of learning as well, mm-hmm. just not on the master's or doctorate track.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a it, it can be a bit much, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: and that's every time I consider going back, I, I remind myself of all the grad students I know, and just the I have a tremendous respect for the work that they do, but it, it is a tremendous amount of work.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the very very like traditional student story of came here right out of high school. Mm. Got into it and said, this is my home now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the community involvement was the main thing that did that for me. When uh-huh. I first came here, I had plans of either going back to Chicago or, uh, you know, moving on to some other place if I went to grad school.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I liked it here. I got involved here. And it was mostly the uh, the Student Environmental Center.
2: Because
1: uh, I got involved in other community groups through them, but they were sort of the gateway,
2: <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know. Because
1: uh, they... They, I mean, I don't remember how explicit they were in this, but they seemed to have sort of an intersectional perspective where uh-huh. they mostly did environmental stuff, but they would support the Peace Coalition events, and they would find other little random events going on in town and let their other students know about it. So uh, that got me connected to a lot of you know, local, older community organizers, and then, uh, yeah, the rest is history.
0: <laughs> nice, nice. And you're here, just planted. Yeah, planted. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean it's hard at times, you know. Like, right now, seeing some of the attitudes related to the pandemic, (laughs) I sometimes do not feel comfortable in this region.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's interesting how you know cities have finally got their stuff together, larger urban populations, and now like listening to NPR, just Friday, it was you know they were talking about oh well the Midwest is the next big pandemic uh, wave, and it's like because people aren't taking it seriously yeah um, you know and thanks to everybody out there who's not taking this seriously and uh, we're gonna kill a bunch of people because I'm tired of the BS narrative of oh well if you're afraid you can just stay home it's like that's not how mm-hmm. community transition their transmission works yeah like guess what man there's gonna be interactions between people and because half of the people are taking this seriously and trying to be safe about it and the other half are just like tossing caution to the wind because ooh, the government, um, everybody hurts. Everybody hurts because of it.
1: Yes. And I wish that, that's one of the main points I wish I could convey to people who have that attitude is it's not just affecting your health. It's affecting the health of everyone around you. Like it's come up most recently with the indoor dining uh, mitigation measures. Mm -hmm. And a lot of restaurants are saying they're going to continue indoor dining anyway. And it's like I understand, you know, I know business owners, I know restaurant employees, I know this is a really difficult time and I wanna help find solutions for that. You mm-hmm. know, I support things like the, the Southern Illinois Collaborative Kitchen,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I support other local restaurants that are being responsible. We, mm-hmm. you know, we, we're not really big takeouts, order out people in our family, but we've probably done a little more than usual during the pandemic because mm-hmm. we wanna support the local restaurants. Yeah. But support is a two way street. And if they're going and doing things that are unsafe, then that's not something I want to support. That's something I want to call out.
0: Yep, yep. And it's uh, you know it's a shame. It, and this boils down to more than just you know restaurants and service industry folks being put in a in a hard place, right? It's our values espoused through uh, you know government policy at a federal level at this point, because we've continued to fail over and over again mm-hmm. to produce uh, an outcome of legislative measures that puts dollars right back in the pockets of regular old people to help them get through this because all we're trying to do right now is get through it right that's all we're trying to do everybody is just biding our time can we get through the next year the next two years whatever the heck this is until we've distributed a vaccine and people are properly like (laughs) caught up on all the health measures that apply to you know mitigating COVID-19 and then on the other end of this we say okay cool we made it through let's get back to some business. Yeah
1: yeah and I wish uh, you know uh, I mean I've had some angry interactions on social media with a couple of the restaurants and their supporters lately but the more sort of calmer, circumspect thing I would like to say to them is if you're afraid your business is going to close then talk to other people in the community, find ways to do it that don't involve endangering public health. Yeah, You know, I would, like th- the restaurants that I've argued with, I would love to come and eat there I- under other circumstances. Yeah. But, you know, in times of crisis, we should turn to our community for help. But if we endanger our community instead of supporting each other, yeah. then this is just going to last longer. And, you know, your your neighbors are going to be mad at you for it. It creates all this division. And really, we should be working together to try to solve
0: this pandemic. Yep, yep. I agree. I agree. I appreciate your, God, you're, you're just, you're flawless in your ideas, Teresa. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it really is like, it really is very, very well thought out and very well communicated um, positions. And you and I have never really had like an in depth conversation about, you know, anything, right? It's mostly in passing, light conversation mm-hmm. uh, out and about at different activities. So to have like a deep dive with you and like really see where, where, your ideas go beyond um you know the the media position and into kind of the the back end of of like the gears turning in tree songs (laughs) head like i dig this man thank you
1: yeah thank you and (laughs) thanks for saying that i'm as an author i'm often sort of skeptical and critical of my speaking abilities you Uh know it's like can i the stuff that I write, can I convey it in spoken form as well? So it's good to hear that it's at least sounding coherent.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. No, <laughs> as somebody who mostly trades in uh, spoken word, I often wonder the same thing about myself, but mostly spoken word to spoken word. <laughs> like here, man, I've, you know, I've, been, I've barely been able to string a thought together uh, all the way through to completion. I get about 80% of the way, and then I start trailing off. But because you're sharp and you know where you're going, you're able to pick it up and run right with it. So I'm appreciative of that. Um, so let's see. I mean, you've, you've talked about being involved in different community organizations uh, over the years. I mean, and in, in really the, the SIU, uh, you said environmental.
1: Yeah, Student Environmental Center.
0: Student Environmental Center. So that was that really like the, your first big exposure to uh, environmental justice activity, or did you have some exposure to it when you were younger as well?
1: Yeah, that really was. I mean, my experience in terms of environment at an early age was my grandfather used to take us for nature hikes occasionally. Mm-hmm. And it was the, there were some nature preserves out in the southwest suburbs of Chicago Mm -hmm. that we would go to. And, uh, you know, for me now, as someone who's been to the Shawnee, it seems small, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Places we, uh, you know, I was a little kid at the time, though, Uh and I lived in a really, you know, I lived in a city. So to be surrounded by trees and to learn about, you know, facts about the natural environment and all that was formative. So then when I got here, I was receptive to it. A lot of the other people I knew who grew up in Chicago and come down here, they're like, Oh, the woods? What about the woods? Why would we <laughs> go out in the woods? <laughs> but I was just, I took right to it. And uh, so, yeah, but S- Student Environmental Center really was what turned that interest into a passion. Uh-huh. And it, it they're now currently the students, uh, uh, they've got an acronym, SENSE, uh, Students Embracing Nature, Sustainability, and Environment, I think it stands for. Uh-huh. And uh, they're still, so they transformed a couple times over the years, but... There's been an environmental presence on campus since 1970, the first Earth Day. Mm-hmm. If I mean, probably longer than that. But that group, <laughs> <laughs> that group alone, has been there continuously on in some form.
0: The, the the legacy activity that occurs on campus and in this town is just awesome. Like, yeah, you know that the, the, there have been people like yourself in Carbondale and caring for as long as there have been. Right, and you talked about getting involved in nonprofits and getting to work with folks who have this kind of legacy, um, you know, standing in, in town. What has it been like having what would probably be a mix of, you know, both mentorship and, and, you know, just point and go guidance from folks who have been doing this for so long. I mean, is there anybody that stands out? Is there an organization that stands out? Is there kind of a, a school of thought that you picked up from somebody that stands out? (laughs)
1: Yeah, let's see. Uh, there's trying to think there's a lot there to get into. Um, yeah. Well, initially it was uh, Hugh Muldoon over at the I- Interfaith Center, uh, uh-huh. the guy house it's now called. Uh, he was really one of the ones who helped me transition from student involvement to community involvement because the students got me into that a little bit, but Hugh was always, he was good at recognizing people who were willing to help and finding tasks for them to help with. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I didn't see him all that often in the early days, but I would find ways to help him with basic tasks around the center. Uh-huh. And then, sure enough, I would soon be getting involved in Peace Coalition stuff and any other stuff going on in the community. And Peace Coalition would be another good one. They have been such consistent voices for peace and justice in the community. I feel like a lot of other groups rise up and fall down again, like they ebb and flow because this is a community that's oh yeah. got a lot of the college turnover. Yep. you know, But they've been pretty steady with that. Uh, and i've been let's see my time at siu introduced me to a lot of environmental philosophies because mm-hmm. as a philosophy major i got to actually study some of those academically and then uh, later at the institute for social ecology i studied that particular environmental philosophy and it really does shape the way i think about the way i think about politics the way i think about justice it's sometimes hard to articulate those connections but it's really interesting to study philosophy in a textbook and then see the ways that it's playing out on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> People often don't think of philosophy in those terms. They think of it as something stuffy that happens in a room somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and re- unfortunately, a lot of philosophers seem to think that as well.
2: <laughs>
1: but uh, I've really enjoyed you know, something of like learning about social ecology, for example, mm-hmm. and then seeing real world examples where it's applied. Mm-hmm.
0: So can you define social ecology for folks that are listening, uh, watching, whatever it may be, uh, or me, that's just sitting right here, that doesn't know or understand it as a as a term.
1: Ah, uh, sure, it, and it's one of only several philosophies I've been interested in, but it's been one of the more formative ones. Uh, social ecology. It's basically Murray Bookchin was one of the founding thinkers of it. the The basic idea is that uh, in the environmental crisis, there's often this tension between like humans and nature. What is the relationship between humans and nature? Mm-hmm. So social ecology says that humans are a part of nature. But there are we we are the part that are the political animal, basically. You know, <laughs> we we have create this this second nature that is all of these institutions and philosophies and social structures mm-hmm. that act on nature. And so the, the goal is to not see the environment as this separate conflict that is happening out there, but to realize that environmental issues are also justice issues. Mm-hmm. That's one way of putting it. You know, they think about the way that we structure our society. And how that affects the environment and how the environment affects us and there's a whole th- the politics of it are really interesting because they the political end of the philosophy is something called libertarian municipalism mm-hmm. which has been a big influence on the way i approach community projects now mm-hmm. I, I used to have a, a big idea of trying to build things on a, on a grand scale you know like, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe the way to change society is to build some really big organization
2: uh-huh.
1: but the libertarian municipalist approach is to say Let's start local, let's start with small groups of people who can meet with each other, discuss with each other, deliberate and make decisions together. And then when we come to agreement on certain things, we can talk to other communities who are doing the same thing and form networks, alliances, that sort of thing. And it can be everything from we've got, you know, you can say you've got a small community group that's talking to other community groups. Mm -hmm. Or in the long run, you can say, we're gonna try to build a whole society where the major decisions are made in the community you know, based on shared principles of justice Mm -hmm. and you can try to reshape the whole society.
0: You're the original municipalist of Carbondale.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure there are others who did it as well, but, you know, it's, there was an influence in me getting involved in the Occupy movement. Uh, It was an influence in some of my interests now and some of the Carbondale Spring stuff, which I haven't really been keeping up on lately because pandemic and stay at home (laughs) dead. But uh, this idea of getting together with your neighbors and, cooperating economically politically is just it's where a lot of the power happens you know
0: so i i'm I'm interested in talking about the occupy movement in carbondale Mm. right because there was there was a lot of you guys were up against a lot of stuff yeah when that occurred (laughs) i mean i I, that's one way to put it (laughs) i i I remember just the the general harassment of the group uh, just as a as a as an onlooker yeah um or, I mean, are there some things that kind of stick out that people did or that happened that it, you know, during that time the Occupy Movement that that is just like, that really happened in Carbondale? <laughs> yeah, <Like laughs>
1: Yeah, I think, well, I'll say first that there are, in the big cities, so much worse happened, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, the police attacks on some of the camps and the, you know, non-police attacks on some of the camps. Uh, there, a lot of places had it worse. But we did have weird things happening, like, People driving by and playing things for us on their stereo or like honking at us and like yelling like there really wasn't as much in terms of physical attacks on us uh-huh. you know, I mean until you get to the point where we were physically evicted <laughs> yeah. from our camp uh, but other than that it was uh, a lo- you know some people coming by yelling throwing things like there was one weird instance where we weren't sure if it was meant to be positive or not but so I think I'm trying to remember what they threw. There was food in a box, but also some sort of like propaganda. And we're like, "What? What is the message here?" <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even clear what they were saying, but it seemed antagonistic. But yeah, <laughs> it was a strange time. No. And then I've always thought that Occupy would have played out differently if it had happened in the spring rather than the fall, uh-huh. because there was a point where the the October rains, like we're getting now, set in, and I was I was getting bronchitis. A lot of people just dropped out and had to yeah. you know leave the physical space because it was getting harder to occupy it
0: mm-hmm. i mean that's you know that's an interesting component of you know determining what what is what is the best time of year to yeah. try and run a revolutionary activity yeah <laughs> that's, well that's why you get things like May
1: Day. you know like uh mayday when we got all of the the, the eight-hour work day and all that uh It's people in the spring, they've got so much energy, they're so excited, they want to do things, they Mm want to change things. Uh, It really, it also was a funny moment of going from the philosopher's understanding of revolution to the tactician's (laughs) understanding. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this is a great idea now, but we're out here in these soaking wet tents and Mm -hmm. we're huddling in a circle trying to decide what to do next, like, (laughs) uh, yeah. It was quite an adventure. I That's think part of what was powerful about it, though, was a lot of people who weren't involved in Occupy think, oh, it happened for a couple months, and then it was over. Yeah. But I see the connections that were made, the personal connections, mm-hmm. the organizational connections, and it was transformative. It was a moment. And it wasn't a moment that changed the entire society, but it changed a lot of people in the community.
0: I think it underpins a lot of the strength of the current movements. Yeah. Um, you know, because the just like any business develops right it you don't just open up overnight and you're successful yeah right in many instances people grind it out for years and years to achieve a point some people grind it out for years and years to end up failing some people grind for years and years just to end up influencing another person or themselves in a different direction and just by virtue of of the activity of occupy the current activities in the streets i think really benefit from some tenacity and some like you said tactics that developed in the occupy movement it's not as long-term like occupy space for a continued period of time but it is almost this like mobile occupation activity of like we are going to be visible we are going to be active like we are going to continue to communicate our message of people need to be treated like people and there are things wrong <laughs> with our structures and our institutions right now we have to fix it
1: yeah yeah and i feel like i i have been uh, impressed to see a lot of that with the black lives matter uprisings too you know it's a, there's a power to physically occupying public spaces, mm-hmm. you know, that th- it's sort of all other political activities don't quite compare to that, I would say. They're all important. They're all part of the organizing. But there does often come a time when you need a, a sort of a flashpoint to draw attention to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because even if you've got a thousand people in a stadium somewhere, <laughs> you know, the people may not hear about it. But if you've got a thousand people in the streets, mm-hmm. they're going to hear about it. They may they may yell at them or they may have different opinions, but they're gonna know, they're gonna hear the complaints, they're gonna, politicians, decision makers, are gonna be forced to confront those talking Mm -hmm. points.
0: Well, and we, you know, you see it in, uh, you know, the the realm Mm -hmm. of capitalism now where companies have all of a sudden just flipped the switch on adapting a socially conscious justice-minded message or the complete opposite end of that where people <laughs> yeah. have re- businesses and organizations have rejected it completely and said, this is bullshit. We're going to oppose this. And that is their, that is their economic stance. Yeah. And that is, you know, part of this realm of, you know, politics and, and business and education and whatever it else may be. Um, so yeah, no, like it, it influences at all levels. Yeah. Whether or not it influences everybody at all levels this is the mm-hmm. next trick <laughs> yeah
1: yeah and there's it's been interesting to do to see the deliberative aspects of you know people who don't participate in such demonstrations they often think that it's just about marching in the streets mm-hmm. but it's so much more that goes on the organizing in the streets and out of the streets you know it's a movement, it's a mass movement and yeah. Such such things can become a model for what we do as a whole society. You know, mm-hmm. we should all as a society be getting together and talk about, you know, what is the just thing to do here? How do we correct these injustices that are longstanding in our society? You know, it's it's something that comes up as a protest because it's not happening properly in the mainstream society. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to live in a society where every time we make decisions about economics, politics, we ask ourselves, how does this affect black communities how does this affect brown communities indigenous communities women all all groups that have been traditionally marginalized you know instead of that being an after the fact thing where you know you commit all of these heinous crimes as a government and then people rise up against it you know why not work on it
0: yeah it's and it's really not that difficult to just not commit crimes as a state <laughs> yeah right like it's it's really not that difficult to keep from separating migrant children from their parents and then misplacing
1: and misplacing the parents or the children. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You'd think so. It seems like a compulsion for some administrators.
0: It's, Uh, it's, it's mind boggling, right? Like how, how, how much do you have to hate another human being in order to be able to validate doing something like that to them? Right. The other side of it, you know, uh, some you know, the water water crises that happen all over this country, whether it's lead pipes in Flint or, you know, pipelines going over, uh, you know, major bodies of water or, you know, again, I've talked about it before here. You know, coal ash seeping into tributaries and into rivers and, and into water sources. It's like at what point in time do we go, man, maybe this is just not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Like, maybe maybe this just hurts people, and maybe this is where we start to fix stuff, not, you know, somewhere at the top where when we say fix stuff, what we really mean is continue to siphon off resources. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like changing
1: where the resources are getting siphoned off of. Yeah. <laughs> or changing where the extractive industries and polluting industries are located. Yeah,
0: Well, I mean, shucks. Uh, imagine, imagine, because, ooh, I, I like where we're going with that. So, right, we, we've always been extractive in nature, as a species, right? As, mm. as humans, right? We, we're earth movers. We like to dig things, right? That's a human thing, like digging the, the concept of extraction, right? And now that we've done so much extracting in so many ways that we've actively put things, pollutants back into the earth that themselves need extracted and handled maybe that's the next concept that we run with maybe the next you know field of extraction is not how do we extract uh you know carbon out of the ground and burn it to make energy but how do we extract the pollutants caused by the carbons that we burned out of the ground and figure out something to do with them
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i think there's going to be a lot of people like mining uh like trash dumps you know to get out all those metals that were thrown away or whatever Oh uh, God, I don't even think
0: about that <laughs> yeah. <a while. laughs> yeah
1: well I think one of the things like it's funny you mentioned pulling the carbons back out of the air because there's been some focus on that now in climate circles because uh, some people say oh that, that can be our big solution there's uh, there's like uh, negative carbon technologies people want to use to solve the climate yeah. crisis and we might actually need something along those lines because we've polluted so much mm-hmm. but to bank on like, oh, we're gonna pollute as much as we want, and then we'll just assume that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this small-scale tech-, tech we've worked out will scale up beautifully and take it all back out. Like, that's a big gamble, and that's—it's much easier to just not do that in the first place.
0: Yeah, yep. I mean, you just got solar installed, right? Yeah. I just got solar installed. This ain't that hard. Yeah. And it's—it's it's like the economic incentives that go along with it are pretty, pretty solid.
1: Yeah, and it's becoming easier too, you with the incentives and. Uh, That's one important thing is ensuring that there are policies that, uh, you know, ideally favor a transition, but even just eliminate some of the massive subsidies to fossil fuels. Because if we've got a dirty fuel that we're trying to transition away from and we give it hand over fist tons and tons of money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then that is just a bit ridiculous. I I know the argument is we do it for job creation and such, but clean energy creates jobs, you know, and it's a growing industry right now.
0: And it's also not, as place-based right because yeah. in terms of you know extraction uh, economics we have to go wherever the oil is we have to go wherever the coal is and we have to work out of there but the reality is the sun is everywhere <laughs> yeah right it's just it is out in space and it shines on earth and woohoo we can go anywhere and mine the sun yeah. that's really what we're doing right I mean yeah. it's, it's may, maybe that's what we need to use. maybe that's the new trick here maybe yeah. we just start calling it sun mining and everybody's going to be much cooler
1: <laughs> yeah well I've heard jokes along the lines of like if you have a like a coal or oil disaster like it's it spills pollutants everywhere but if you have a a solar disaster it's called a sunny day <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that is it is a good way to get our a lot of our energy yeah and also just decreasing the amount of energy use as well. It's good yep. to do decreasing the energy use, use what we do more efficiently, and mm-hmm. have cleaner sources
0: yep yep
1: on oh, yeah. getting back to one point you mentioned earlier, Absolutely. Um, there's uh, in terms of perpetuating the injustices in our society, you know there are a lot of built in structural injustices where mm-hmm. you know you said something along the lines of you know it shouldn't be that hard for the government to not abuse people or be yeah. unjust to people and it shouldn't and m- one of the things that getting back into like uh, the my whole like real-life superhero archetype uh-huh. I- if I'm a real-life superhero then I would say one of my super villains is the, uh, the think tanks that really pus- mm-hmm. push fossil fuel use uh-huh. and a lot of the times I- a thought experiment for, for you is to anytime you see conservative n- news sources repeating the same language about the same topic you can pause and think to yourself, are they reading a press release from the Heartland Institute, from ALEC, from any of these conservative think tanks?
0: Uh, tree Song versus the Cato Institute. <laughs> yes. You <laughs> can see it yes. now. The next. <laughs>
1: I would read that comic. <laughs> oh.
0: uh,
1: but yeah. And it's insidious because a lot of people don't realize the influence they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, because... They hear it on a radio station or on a in a newspaper, on a TV show, and they think, "Oh, that news anchor must have just come up with this idea." Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, so I, so I've worked in in um, in media for the longest time, right? Like, I'm mm-hmm. not just an internet troll. Like, I actually <laughs> get this on the back end. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so you, yeah, you know, the uh, uh, d- it is it is terrifying the way that local news stations operate now. I mean, you know, we're we're a very interesting position here because our DMA. Uh, Designated marketing area covers uh, you know a a four-state region. If you count five-state, if you count the little parts of Tennessee and Arkansas, but really three-state region of southeast Missouri, southern Illinois, western Kentucky. Of those three uh, states, each state has its own news station in it. We cover both call signs of K and Ws because we're on either side of the Mississippi, uh, and uh, we've got three different levels of operation. Uh Gray Media, which now owns KFES 12, is a pretty large operator, just under the size of your Next Stars and your Sinclairs. Quincy Media is your is your like mid to large range operator uh, who's you know got about I think 50 some odd uh television stations and they bought out um Bonnie and Steve Wheeler who had TV three since I think the early 80s, something like that. And then you've got the Paxtons that own WPSD in Paducah. And it shows in the content that is shared really what each size and what each type of organization values in the messages they produce and how they produce them, hmm. right? Now, I, I say that to say we, we have seen a little bit of that canned message stuff uh, come out. I mean, over the past couple of decades, but also as of recently, in our market. But the real problematic folks are the Sinclair's. Who yeah. I forgot about them. They, they Sinclair has the Fox station, but the Fox station doesn't have its own standalone news program. It produces or it uh, utilizes an in-house produced piece from KFES, and they just resell it there. Um, but they're they're the ones that are providing these canned messages, distributing it to. 300 local television stations all across the country in varying sizes and then trying to make it seem like a concept from a national think tank is really your local news anchor trusted news sources opinion and it's not it's astroturfing bullshit yeah
1: (laughs) and i'm glad you mentioned the term astroturfing because i'm a big fan of that as well yeah
0: or the opposite of being yeah. a fan of astroturfing, like being a fan, <laughs> fan of, the of term. knowing what astroturfing <laughs> yes. is and tearing it down as a concept, but yeah. also not liking it happening.
1: No. Well, yeah, and I like <laughs> it because it's—I like the term because it's a concise way to describe such a problematic situation. Uh-huh. And yeah, I'm glad you know, as all those details, like Sinclair is the one that sticks out to me because they're just nationally, like, you know, known for that. Yeah, but it, it happens in a lot of other contexts too, and. It's it's problematic because, you know, you do, like you said, they put that folksy, you know, news anchor or other communicator in front of the audience. Yeah. And they think, oh, yeah, I like that guy. He's got some good ideas there. And it's really some, you know, ex- executive in an office that... But like some working for some billionaires <laughs> and you think it's your folksy local newscaster who came up with the idea.
0: And it's and it may be cool that John Oliver tears this type of stuff down on last week tonight mm-hmm. and hits an audience of 20 million people at once that all go. Oh, that's what's happening. But the reality is that the content that's going out on those news stations is actually reaching 120 million. Yeah. People. So it's like that little bit of activity there on John Oliver's side doesn't counteract the six fold distribution of that message to people that aren't going to see the breakdown of it. Yes. Um, And
1: that's where the polarization and the content bubbles come in. Yep. Because, you know, it's great that John Oliver and others, you know, there are many people drawing light on this whole media situation, but it's great that their audience hears it, but the audience that needs to hear it the most isn't hearing it. The the audience that's listening to the the Sinclair uh, stations and all that, who, get a lot of their news from press releases generated by these think tanks. Yep. They don't know, like, you know, they I mean, I've talked about this. I wrote a whole article about how I don't think the pandemic denial is actually a case of people just being dumb. I think it's a misinformation campaign.
0: Oh, it absolutely is a misinformation campaign. Yeah. And you, so
1: like, <laughs> you know, it's understandable if someone if if you're not schooled in media analysis and you mm-hmm. hear somebody on the radio says something and then somebody on the TV says it and on the newspaper it just seems like it's true.
0: Yeah. Well, because it has created this reality around you, right? Like yeah. the 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 media that is creates a reality for you, whether it is or is not real. It is in an own, in its own sense of the way. Bear with me here, Tree hmm. Virtual reality.
1: Virtual reality. Oh, yes. <laughs> there you go. And it's also related to John Oliver and John Stewart. Truthiness comes to mind. There you go. And yep. Stephen Colbert. <laughs> uh, <sighs> yeah. So, yeah, there's a truthiness to the content bubble, but <laughs> a lot of disinformation in there. And yeah. it's hard to unpack it, y- you know, if you're talking face-to-face to someone or yelling at them online. Yep. It's hard to unpack it in a two-minute conversation and say, you've been fed a bunch of d- disinformation. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. You know, there are times when I've had to correct my view on things because I learned new information, and I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> but you've got to do it. You've got to <laughs> ask yourself, is the new source I'm reading, is it true? Is it, like, where did they get their sources?
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: yeah. So I would say one of our biggest tasks in trying to solve all of these political problems on this end is to work on all of this media stuff. Because as long as there's a pipeline of like QAnon conspiracies and like fossil fuel propaganda just going straight into people's brains, it's gonna be hard because you know I, I bu- truly believe that a lot of the people here in Southern Illinois who buy into that stuff, you know they're hardworking folks, they care about their family, they care about their community but they also like have a lot of hate coming up because they've been told that that all these other things are threatening that. Yeah. I mean, if someone told me my family was being threatened and my job was being threatened and all that, I'd get upset too. So, yeah. how do we get them to work together with people who don't believe that way?
0: <laughs> well, in in the the issue goes back to a guy that worked with at a news station who was a uh, who was a reporter in rural Missouri for the longest time. Right. He he talked about. Uh, different components and specifically uh, the Confederate flag being the statement of don't tell me how to think, right? That a lot of folks, what they, what they really want is not to believe specifically one thing or the other, but they don't want to be told how to think that Mm -hmm. is where the true opposition to an idea comes from is not whether or not that, uh, that idea is true, but how that idea has been presented to them. And often truthful matters are presented to somebody in a way of, uh, This is how you have to think because this is true, whereas something that is a lie is presented as this tidbit of information you should know, but we'll let you decide for yourself. (laughs) Right. And that's that's the trick here where the people telling the truth are saying, no, you have to believe this. This is the truth. The people that that are telling lies are saying, oh, well, you know, you don't have to believe it. But, man, I'd be hard pressed to not. You know what I'm saying? And that is, you know, the the trick of of presentation of media. Yes. Right. Uh, it well, and presentation
1: is so important. I've I'm reminded of climate communication again. Well, that's where I often go back to. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there there's something called the like the information deficits communication style where you assume that all you need to do to change someone's mind is throw a bunch of facts at them.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Which, if you have an audience that's used to you know like an academic audience uh-huh. and they're receptive to what you're saying, yeah. then that may work. But at almost any other audience, that's just going to turn them off. They'll just become more entrenched in their own views. Yeah. Because really you need styles of communication that consider the specific audience you're speaking to and find ways to address their concerns. And that doesn't happen with just throwing some charts at someone. You need that, that sort of that styling, that framing in order to reach that audience. That's something I struggle with is I, I end up gearing most of my communication towards people who are uh, you know, already concerned about the climate crisis or alarmed about the climate crisis. But then in the moments when I find myself communicating with someone who's not, <laughs> I have to do that sort of mental math of saying, okay, how do I talk about this? You know, I, I don't want to go into charts and graphs and such. I want to go into their concerns. Yeah. Like, are they concerned about losing their job? Are they concerned that the government's gonna, you know, take away all their stuff? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, you know,
1: I'm, I'm, another term that I identify with politically is social anarchist. Mm-hmm. Like, which is sort of as a sort of Venn diagram overlap with libertarian municipalist, uh-huh. <laughs> and so I am I am often very skeptical of what the
0: government's doing. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but when it that's what we that's <laughs> what we really need is for everybody to just really like pal around <laughs> their their thought that the government's out there to not do us good right now. <laughs> yes. And everybody can agree on that one, no matter yeah. where you're at on the political spectrum. Yeah. And it all needs just one big fresh flip over. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> and I think if we can talk about that and agree on that, we might find some common ground. But then it's it's been ironic to me for a while now, you know, me with anarchist tendencies being more law-abiding than <laughs> these law and order conservatives. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, do I happen to be happy that the the government in Illinois seems to be pursuing a mostly evidence-based
2: response. Uh
1: And I'm not doing it because I like the government or because I like Pritzker or whatever. (laughs) I'm doing it because it makes sense. (laughs) It makes sense to work on pandemic response. (laughs) (laughs) And so I can understand, totally understand the fear of the government response, but you gotta take a deep breath and say, okay, I'm afraid of government overreach, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna kill my neighbor with a plague. (laughs) You know, Because <laughs> th- you, you're also letting the d- government define you. I'll put it that way. Yeah. It's like a, a petulant child, like <laughs> throwing a tantrum. Like, well, the government said to do this, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah, That's, that's not, uh, like, I, I'm going to drive on the wrong side of the road because the government said, drive in the right lane, I'm going to be in the left lane. Like, yeah. That'll just get everybody killed. <laughs>
2: no.
1: There are uh, times when you follow the, the laws and the rules of society because it makes sense and you're helping people and there are times when you have to oppose or resist those. And this is a case where it makes sense to respond to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So let's do it.
0: I like the thought that we should not let a state entity define us one way or the other, whether it is our opposition to policy or our embrace of policy, and that we should pursue something simply based on its righteousness. And that's a novel freaking idea to apply for a lot of folks. Because yeah. if you like, if people all of a sudden just like snap to and they're like, oh, you mean you mean the government is controlling me, even though I'm rejecting what the government has to say, simply based <laughs> on the fact that all of my reaction is to what the government's saying to begin with, yeah, <laughs> and not to the reality of, you know, say a pandemic, right? That's, that's, that's crazy because ultimately that becomes the government telling you how to think. It just happens to be that you've opted to go the exact opposite of what the government is saying because you've decided your, your position is to oppose whatever the government says. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, and really that polarization only in many ways serves to help the government in the long run because, mm-hmm. I mean, I think of like the two-party system and the polarization between Democrats and Republicans where um, a, a lot of people think a lot of people either reject this critique of the two-party system entirely or they go too far with it and say the two parties are exactly the same.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> I, I think that they are very different in some ways and have some common policies that they both pursue. Yeah. And it is because of that difference that allows them to pursue the common policies. Mm-hmm. So if they get people over here fighting about masks and fighting about you know, uh, a lot of social issues that one side cares about and another side doesn't, then most of those people who are arguing will look away from foreign policy, mm-hmm. economic policy, the things that the two parties sometimes agree on.
0: Mm-hmm. Which ultimately just feeds into how do we make the rich richer and yeah. you know, watch the poor continue to struggle.
1: Yeah. So it's like the billionaires laughing to the bank while we argue here about these social issues.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't advocate for them. You know, we should still advocate for these issues, but we shouldn't fall into the trap of like, like you said, the government doing something and then you have some arguing for it, some arguing against it, but nobody questioning the role of the government in that.
0: I like to end these on a lesson, and that was as good of a lesson as any tree song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, thank you. <laughs> a, listen, a lesson in how or how not to trust your government. Uh, episode 16 of the WTF Carverdale podcast. Uh, I would like to say thank you to Tree Song. It was an absolutely enthralling interview Uh, My friend and I look forward to going back and listening to this uh, and pulling out little golden nuggets, little tidbits of brilliant information uh, from it. Uh, And to those out there who have listened through it, I hope you were able to enjoy it uh, just as well. That said, have a good one, whatever that one may be.